0: I'm always in awe (laughs) of how the Lord arranges things, especially if it's been a message I struggled with. Yeah, you wouldn't think this would be a struggling message, but it was. (laughs) The title of my message is Worship, Submitting to Love. This morning, I want to talk to you about worship. What exactly is worship, and how exactly do we do worship? When the Lord told me to minister on worship, I thought, oh, good, easy-peasy. I will look up all the ways we can worship, and we'll look at the Hebrew words, and we'll see the singing and the dancing and the raising of our hands. And God said, nope. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He led me instead to the very heart of worship, which is you may not know this, submitting ourselves to his love and his truth. So I started by looking at all the places the word worship is used in the whole Bible. (laughs) And they all meant the same thing. (laughs) And the first place this word worship is used is in Genesis 22, which is the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac on an altar. Now, according to theologians, the first time a specific word is used in Scripture it holds a precedence in interpreting that same word throughout the rest of Scripture. It's called the Law of First Mention, and it says basically, God does not change. (laughs) So if we want to correctly understand the Scriptures He wrote, we need to understand what a word meant the first time it was used in the Scripture. So we're going to take a quick look at the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac on an altar. I'll begin reading with verse 1, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. (laughs) And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now this is interesting because Abraham uses the word worship here. It's not used at all before this, but yet he was a worshiper. He had offered many sacrifices. But obviously, this particular offering was different. (laughs) Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering, and Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, and so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! (laughs) Where he said, yes, yes, here I am, here I am. (laughs) I'm listening. (laughs) And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This kind of fear was called reverence, and it included the idea of submitting oneself out of respect to a superior. But I also think in this particular case, there was a little bit of fear. verse 13 and Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide or Yahweh God's actual name (laughs) Yahweh will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided This story, of course, is filled with prophetic insight into what would one day happen on that very mountain, which is where our Heavenly Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus, together would do the work necessary to reconcile the whole world back to themselves. We can see this truth in 2 Corinthians 5.19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world the entire world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation praise God this is the same kind of relationship that Abraham enjoyed with God (laughs) the law hadn't come in (laughs) so God was working with Abraham based on grace Abraham was counted righteous apart from his works God counted him righteous, or in right standing with himself, simply because of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed what God said. That was it. He believed what God said, and God counted him to be right with himself. So, we don't ever see God punishing Abraham for lying, or for getting himself into various types of hot water there was a king or two that he irritated. <laughs> and, and that's because God wasn't holding Abraham's sin against him. I remember Sunday school lessons where people were like, why does Abraham get to get away with this? <laughs> why doesn't God smack him up alongside the head? Because that's not who our father is. Our father has always wanted to have non-imputation of sin just like we have now but they would not (laughs) however god did bring up to abraham when he was after they had made the covenant that he was supposed to walk before the lord in blamelessness or in other words in integrity because he was in covenant with el shaddai the lord almighty we can see this in genesis Chapter 17, in verse 1. I have it for you in three different versions because I want you to see the difference in how they're translated. One by an English translator, one who speaks English as their first language, and the other two are translated by Jewish translators who understand the Hebrew much better. (laughs) The KJV. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. How many love that one? (laughs) I never liked that scripture. (laughs) Now to me, especially for a long time, this sounds demanding and possibly even dangerous. I am the Lord Almighty. Be blameless. Oh no. This, of course, is translated by English-speaking translators. And they interpret God through their own understanding, which has been, for years, understood as God demands perfection from his people. And there are many who subscribe to that kind of thinking still to this day. But they could have used a different, equally correct English word. Another word for perfect is complete. So we could better understand this scripture as I am El Shaddai, the God of supply, (laughs) live in my presence, which is what that actually means, and you will be complete, lacking no good thing. We see the same idea in the Tree of Life version. This is from a Jewish translator. When Abram was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am El Shaddai. Continually walk before me and you will be blameless. You will be complete. In other words, being cognizant of God's presence would actually enable Abraham to walk in completeness and blamelessness. This sounds a lot like Proverbs 3. (laughs) Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. He's the provision. He's the inspiration. I like this version because God's presence, it sounds like, is to be prized as helpful (laughs) instead of feared like a mallet hanging over one's head just waiting for you to make a mistake. Remember that game at Chuck E. Cheese? What is that, (laughs) whack-a-mole? Unfortunately, people really do see God that way. Go ahead, just be imperfect, and I'll show you who I am. I am God Almighty. I have one more version. This is the Jewish publication of the Old Testament Society. (laughs) JPS for short. (laughs) When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be thou wholehearted. I like this version as well, because it is Abraham's heart that God wants to persuade by revealing to him the true heart of God. Now because we're not Jewish, we can sometimes lose some of the meaning that's actually revealed in the text. And even though translators do do their best, the best that they know how to do, they can sometimes miss some of the nuances that are hidden, if you will, in plain sight. The name El Shaddai actually paints particular pictures to the Jewish mind. (laughs) And it's more specific than just saying God is almighty or all-powerful. El Shaddai has several different meanings attributed to it. It can be understood to mean the god of the mountain, the god who overpowers and destroys all opposition, the god who is completely sufficient, the god who supplies fertility, and the god who is himself the breasty one. God, who is the breasty one, refers to God's cherishing love and constant supply for every need. Now, we can see why the name El Shaddai would have meant so much to Abraham. God had already shown Abraham at this point in in the story that El Shaddai was himself his protective shield and that he was the one who overcame and destroyed all the opposition from the angry kings. (laughs) And it was El Shaddai who prospered Abraham in spite of having the less desirable land. And it was El Shaddai who was definitely the god of fertility who gave him and his wife a son in their old age. No, I do not want children in my old age. They are way too much work. (laughs) And then came the call up to a mountain, God of the mountain, one of his names, to meet with God and to worship him. And it was there that the God of the mountain, El Shaddai himself, that God would be seen as God who is the breasty one, The one who is cherishing love and constant supply. It is the image of a nursing mother. Now, sometimes people take offense to this description (laughs) because it's obviously female. But the truth is God is neither male nor female. He is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body whereby we would know that he was male. When God created mankind, he made the male and female, both in his own image. This is simply a picture to help us understand who God is revealing himself to be. When he was revealing himself as El Shaddai. Now, the call to Abraham to sacrifice his son would not have been unexpected. We look at this command and ask ourselves, what was God thinking? (laughs) How could he ask this of Abraham? But this was the ultimate test of a worshiper's fidelity and sincerity in that time in history. Child sacrifice, or in this case, adult human sacrifice, was thought to be somewhat commonplace amongst various tribes of people. And it was meant to prove one's faithfulness to their deity by offering their best and their highest possession. And it was supposed to appease the anger of their deity who was angry because of the sins of the worshiper. And of course, most deities were thought to be angry (laughs) because of some type of lack in the worshiper's life. If it didn't rain, then the rain god must be mad. If your wife wasn't getting pregnant, then the fertility god must be mad. Ancient peoples basically believed that there were spiritual entities and they called them gods. They're actually demonic spiritual entities that were in control of everything. And they were usually mad about something humans were either doing or not doing. (laughs) So these ancient peoples sacrificed to these entities in an effort to persuade the entities to be gracious to them and to grant them what they had need of. So, this was very likely the same understanding that Abraham had of El Shaddai as well. Because that's the way the gods are, obviously. (laughs) At least to some degree, he probably had that picture in his mind. So, if God demands a human sacrifice, then he's probably mad about something. (laughs) He needs to be appeased. Also, God, as his God and covenant partner, had the right to demand Abraham to prove his loyalty by worshiping El Shaddai with his highest and best gifts which were his son and his promise. Now unfortunately many believers also see our Father the same way. They believe God might demand that they give up what is most precious to them as a way of proving their fidelity to him. They see God not as El Shaddai, the breasty one, the one who is cherishing love and abundant supply, but as El Shaddai, the God who overpowers and destroys all opposition. They see God as El Shaddai, the God who would ask us to sacrifice our most precious gifts and promises as an act of worship, proof, evidence of how good we are. Blech. <laughs> so what does the word worship in Hebrew actually mean? I have the definition from the Strong's Concordance for you to see, and I've added some helps. The word for worship throughout the entire Old Testament is the word shakah, And it means to depress oneself, not others. To depress oneself, that is to prostrate, reflexively in homage to royalty or to God. It means to bow oneself down, to crouch down, to fall down flat, to humbly beseech. To make obeisance, there's a word we never use. which is affectionate deference. It means to defer or to submit to the will or wishes of another out of courteous regard or respect. It means to do reverence. Reverence is defined as fear mingled with respect and esteem. So worship would be an action based on reverential fear and awe. This word also means to make to stoop, oneself, and that's called, the submission, this deferring to, is called worship. So, what we see here is that worship begins when we recognize God as God, <laughs> and we acknowledge that He really does have the right to demand of us anything He deems appropriate. And then, out of respect for his power and authority and his big mallet, (laughs) we submit ourselves to his will out of reverential fear and awe so he doesn't squash us. (laughs) But is that really who God is? (laughs) The God who demands worship and sacrifice? Hmm. People often perceive God in the Old Testament as demanding that people bow down and worship him. In fear. He wants them to be quaking in their boots especially if they try to resist if God was actually like that then why would he stop Abraham from sacrificing his son and his promise now Abraham obviously believed in El Shaddai as the God who overcomes and destroys all those opposed to him because of the kings that God enabled him to overcome Abraham obviously believed that El Shaddai was the God of fertility. Hello, 90 years old? (laughs) Because God enabled both him and his wife to conceive. You see, God is a God of supply, not a God of demand. And since he found himself on top of a mountain, (laughs) he probably believed that El Shaddai was the God of the mountain. But did he really understand that El Shaddai was the breasty one, the one who is himself cherishing love and abundant supply. Abraham's story is really the story of the one true and living God, revealing himself and his heart to his covenant partner. God never wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son and his promise. Instead, God wanted to reveal to Abraham that he was truly El Shaddai, God who is the breasty one. God who is the one who is cherishing love and abundant supply for free. (laughs) God wanted Abraham to know that he was not, nor had he ever been, like any other so-called gods who demanded submission and sacrifice. God's desire is and always has been to give us Himself to reveal to our hearts His true nature, which is cherishing love and tender affection and complete access and abundant supply. God doesn't need anything from us. (laughs) He's the supplier. He's the enabler. He's the empowerer. He doesn't need something from us. God wanted to reveal to Abraham that the one true and living God isn't interested in taking life or demanding sacrifice, but only in giving his own life to and for mankind. See, when it comes to worship, it matters how we see God. If we see God incorrectly, we will fear that he will do us evil for our own good. Years ago, I heard a testimony, true story, of a young woman who suffered a great trauma regarding her little girl. She told the story that one evening, while she was in the kitchen getting dinner ready, she had this thought, check on the baby. Her little one was like 18 months old, maybe two. And at first, she's like, no, baby's just fine. (laughs) She knew where her little one was. She was just in the other room playing while her older children were watching TV. So she dismissed the thought, check on the baby. But God, in his faithfulness, continued to insist that she check on the baby. (laughs) And when she finally did, she found that her little one had gotten wrapped up in the cords of a Venetian blind and was being strangled. Thankfully, she found her in time to save her life. But this incident did not give her comfort and confidence that God was able to protect and rescue her baby. Instead, it triggered her deepest fear. She had always been secretly terrified that God would take one of her children away from her. She had been taught by her church that God gives and God takes away. He's got a mallet, so you better understand that He is Almighty. And that God could choose at any moment to take one of her children away from her, for her own good, of course, and for his glory. This woman had a warped picture of who God is in his nature. She pictured him as someone who would take away one of her most precious possessions, one of her children, just because he could, for the purpose of bringing good out of tragedy, in order to make himself look good. Blech! (laughs) because of this picture there was no way she could trust herself or her children to the God she had in her mind so she literally lived in constant terror which by the way is exhausting (laughs) so she finally had to seek some help and she found a minister who understood how to treat trauma in Christians and he was able to help her recognize That God was actually the good guy in this scenario. (laughs) He was faithful to keep insisting that she check on her baby. And while she was going through this process, she finally remembered that he had actually done other things during that time to try to get her into the room where the baby was. There was all kinds of distractions. She was like determined to get dinner on that table. (laughs) It finally became clear to her that God was responsible for saving her baby. So, obviously, he wasn't the one who wanted to take her baby away. When she recognized all that God had done for her to help her and her baby, her picture of God changed. It went from a picture of God who demands and takes life to a picture of a God who really is El Shaddai, the breasty one, the one who is himself cherishing love and abundant supply. Abraham had the same kind of revelation on top of that mountain. It was the same revelation. When God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac, he recognized that El Shaddai wasn't like any other so-called God. In fact, he was completely different. (laughs) He didn't want to take anything away from Abraham. Instead, he wanted to impart a brand new picture of who El Shaddai really was. He was, and he is still to this day, the breasty one. The one who is like a nursing mother, faithfully loving us, tenderly watching over us, affectionately providing us with everything that we need for life and godliness. That's who El Shaddai wanted to reveal himself as to Abraham. El Shaddai, the almighty one, the breasty one, was and is the one who provided himself a lamb. And not just any lamb, but the only sinless sacrificial lamb whose eternal blood alone could purchase our redemption. God had to provide Abraham with a proper sacrificial substitute. Because of humanity's sin, we can never give God something in our sinful state that's of any real value. (laughs) It doesn't appease God because God's not actually angry with us. He loves us and He longs over us to know Him. Because that's what every human being needs, is to know God as father and yes, even as mother. (laughs) Only God, only El Shaddai, only the Almighty, only the God of the mountain, only the God who overcomes and destroys all opposition, which is actually sin, could provide us with the one and only perfect and complete sacrifice. The once and for all sacrifice of the Son of God himself, who wants us to know what God is really like. (laughs) He's not trying to get anything from us. He's not looking for us to bring him any kind of sacrifice. He's not looking for us to bring him some kind of sacrifice, not even a sacrifice of praise. Because what does a sacrifice, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to ingratiate you to the one to whom you offer it. God doesn't want us trying to ingratiate ourselves. He wants us to believe we and receive the truth, that He's already favors us, that we're His, that He loves us, that He wasn't, doesn't want to demand to take anything away from us. He only wants to supply everything we need for life and godliness. Unfortunately, in the church at large, worship is often a competition. Who can worship bigger? Who can worship longer? Who can kneel the most who can jump the highest (laughs) who is going to show God how much they love him and am I going to do it better than you God will love me better and favor me more if I jump really high (laughs) really (laughs) no now obviously if you look in the psalms there is jumping and leaping and praising God there is twirling There's all kinds of expression of adoration to God, but it does not affect the way our Father sees us. It affects the way we see our Father. And that's the point of worship. Years ago, when Mark and I were looking for a church, there was this lady who was very exuberant in her worship. And she sort of jazzercised all around the church. <laughs> and I am not kidding. <laughs> and I am not exaggerating. <laughs> and she scared the bejeebies out of a lot of people. <laughs> and she almost hit people in the head because she was sizing, baby. <laughs> and in an effort to contain her enthusiasm, they put her on the worship team. And, m- and made her stand still. So she left and went to another church where she could jazzercise to God (laughs) because she thought her exuberance was gaining for her approval, love, and adoration from Father. See how good my my jazzerizing little daughter is? She really loves me. She went from church to church to church to church because people said, no, honey, you are welcome to worship your little heart out back there. (laughs) Because we don't want our people looking at you. That's not the point of worship. Worship is about us having our eyes on him and your distraction. (laughs) Worship your heart out back there. But she didn't like that. This is my worship. Is it, or is it God's? Well, how does God see worship? Submission to Him. Submission to Him. Was she willing to submit to love, to love loving correction? Was she willing to give herself under the authority of the churches that she kept going to visit? No, it's my worship. Okay, <laughs> then you can have your worship. But this is a body, and we worship together. One of the things Michelle did today is she kept adding we. <laughs> There's a concept there. We don't come just for us to worship. We come for we to worship. And love, agape love, is love that submits to not only to God, but to each other. After Abraham and his son offered the ram caught in the thicket, which was a prophetic picture of Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns on his head as he was nailed to the tree, as our substitutional and all-encompassing offering. Abraham calls the name of that place Yahweh yirah We see this in verse 14 of chapter 22. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord or Yahweh shall be seen. Therefore, it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, in the mount of Yahweh, on top of that mountain, it shall be seen. It was prophetic. He doesn't say it has been seen, although that would have been correct. (laughs) But that it will be seen. And it was. Approximately 2,000 years later, El Shaddai, the God of cherishing love and abundant supply, provided in reality what was provided earlier symbolically. Because God so loved us above and beyond all that we can think or imagine. He gave. He didn't demand. He gave. He gave himself as an offering for our sin. He is a giving God, a loving God, a providing God. And he wants us to know him as he truly is. Because that's the only way we will be able to trust him. You can't trust a God you believe will kill your children just because he has a bad day. God doesn't have bad days. (laughs) But you can't submit to terror and be in love at the same time. Those things do not match. Those things are like the law and grace. They don't work together. We're not supposed to be terrified of our Father. We're supposed to know that He only wants what's good for us. That way we can trust Him, we can trust Him love, and we can voluntarily submit ourselves to His love. That's what worship is. Us submitting ourselves to who He really is and all that He has done. It took me two days <laughs> to get to the point where I could say, Lord, I know what worship is in here. (laughs) I know it's not the raising of hands. I know it's not even the speaking in tongues. I know in here what worship feels like, but how do I explain it to somebody else? And he said, just keep thinking about it. He says, if you think about what worship does is it comes to be loved and it comes to give love. It's all about love, not about demand. It's one of those things that's hard to explain. But when, I remember when I first started raising my hands, oh my goodness, <laughs> it was so excruciating. <laughs> because my flesh head said, <laughs> everybody's looking at you. And it's like, oh, this hurts, Jesus, it hurts. <laughs> As I would raise my hand. But you see, I had prayed this really crazy prayer. I had said, God, teach me to worship you. See, I didn't know I was actually saying, God, help me to to submit myself, body, soul, and spirit to your love. You see, God is very circular. You give and you receive and you give and you receive, and that's just how God works. <laughs> so when you start giving God worship, when you start expressing what's in your heart, you're gonna receive of His presence and His goodness and the hearing Him, you get more out of worship than God does. God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship <laughs> because it's about relationship with Him. So when I was trying to get this message together, it's like, oh, Jesus, this is hard. <laughs> How do I explain that you use one specific word to describe worship? And it was submission. Submission. Submit to me. Not to my demands to my supply submit to my grace submit to my love i want to enable and empower you i'm not trying to get something away from you you don't have anything i need (laughs) i want to give you everything you need god doesn't demand worship he inspires it that's the point it's not us doing our best to bring something to God it's us recognizing God for who he is and how good he is and how much he loves us and our hearts saying yes and amen yes and amen you love me you died for me I submit to your love I submit to your goodness I refuse to try to follow the laws and make myself perfect because you have already made me perfect. You have supplied me with completeness. You have supplied me with everything I need for life and my godliness. You have made me like you, so I can have relationship with you. And it's all about relationship with him. According to the Hebrew word for worship, worship primarily means that we bring ourselves into submission to all that he is and all that he has done. And when we know and see God for who he really is, our hearts will automatically respond in faith and worship and adoration. No demand is even necessary. Because when we see him as he is, we can't help but love him and trust him. Abraham needed to know that El Shaddai wasn't a God of demand because every spiritual entity in the world was, was and is a God of demand. So God's not a God of demand even when it comes to worship. He invites us to submit to his love and his presence. God was completely different than Abraham might have guessed. In fact, the church still is afraid that God will kill their kids because he can, and it would be good for you. That's not the right picture of God. God does not take life. He gives life. So Abraham is the one who needed to know that El Shaddai wasn't a God of demand, not even when it came to worship. He was completely different than Abraham could have ever guessed. There was no other God like this. He was a God of cherishing love and abundant, Continuous supply. Everything Abraham needed in order to truly worship his God, his God had completely supplied for him. Now, when God called Abraham and told him to stop and not to sacrifice Isaac, it was that moment. Especially that moment, I believe, that Abraham saw God for who he really was. When he saw the truth, when he saw that God didn't want to take anything away from him, that God didn't want him to try to prove how faithful he was, <laughs> he willingly and voluntarily rejoiced and worshiped in his God. There was probably jumping and leaping <laughs> for joy. <laughs> so no demand was necessary because he was inspired to worship God by seeing the goodness of El Shaddai, the breasty one. Abraham probably thought he knew his God pretty well. Like I say, he's been in a relationship for a while because he did submit to God's demand for a sacrifice of Isaac. Again, very common in that time, very common in Abraham's mind. He probably even expected it to show up one day (laughs) because those other gods want you to prove that you are faithful. But God wanted Abraham to know him even better. He wanted him to know him as the God who lovingly cherishes us and our kids and our promises. God wanted Abraham to submit to and understand grace, absolutely free loving kindness of God divine enablement from God for free. (laughs) He wanted Abraham to see the truth that there's no offering or sacrifice that a human being could ever come up with that could enable them to find or receive God's favor, God's love, God's life, and God's presence. It was only available by faith in God's grace, the grace of El Shaddai. Many people in this world say, I'm a good person. I'll just bring all my good works to god he'll let me in no you're dead and nothing you can bring and nothing you can do can get you over the gap (laughs) you're dead you have no life that's the real problem it's not about being good and doing good it's about having life and life more abundant it's about knowing his love and living in love and letting him letting him love why is the grace message so repugnant to people Because they want to bring God their works. They want to earn it. They want God to say, good boy, good girl. You did good. Now, does God praise us when we reveal who his his real character is? Well, of course he does. (laughs) But it's not buying us something. It doesn't make God's heart change. He's not mad. He doesn't need an offering in order to give us his favor. He wants to give us everything. It's the same for us in the New Testament as it was for Abraham. If we want relationship with God, it's only available through faith in what God has already done <laughs> through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not available by doing good works or by sacrificing anything good. Oh, I remember the Easter offerings. If you really love Jesus, you'll give to the hurts. We've got to send money to the missionaries. Don't you want God's favor? See, if you give, God will give. God has already given (laughs) above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine. He loves us like crazy (laughs) and he can't wait to bless us, but we have to submit to his love. So many of the church is working really hard for Jesus. God doesn't want us to work really hard for him. He wants to do the work through us. And guess what? He's better at it. (laughs) He just wants us to submit ourselves to his truth and grace. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word for worship, you might think, well, maybe it's different, right? Let's look at it. It is two words put together, proskuneo, but it means literally, to kiss. And it has an expression, like a dog licking his master's hand. Now you might think, "Mm, (laughs) hmm, not sure I like that picture. (laughs) But the picture painted for us is that of a pet, a pet who is loved, responding to his master's loving touch. It's about response. Not about something demanded. Now, my dog will demand that you love him. (laughs) Constantly. (laughs) Um, If this word also means to fawn or to crouch to, again, submitting ourselves. That is literally or figuratively, it means to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reference, to adore, to worship. All of these actions are in response to the face of the one they're looking to. Hallelujah. So yes, it sounds very much like the Hebrew word for worship. And that's because true worship comes from our hearts, seeing the truth of who God really is. The truth of our fathers and our Jesus's cherishing, tender, affectionate love and the abundant supply of goodness provided through the cross. When we see this, it will inspire us to worship. We won't be able to help ourselves. (laughs) I have to worship you, Jesus. I have to worship you, Jesus. When I was making this message yesterday, I'm trying to explain it to my husband, and I'm crying like a baby. (laughs) Because when you see how good he is, and how much and how desperately he loves us, you can't help but respond to give him what he's given you, to love him the way he loves you. It inspires us to love him, to worship him. Years ago, when the day was long and life was busy and it seemed to me I needed more hours in my day, I would think, oh God, please help. (laughs) There's way too much to do. How will I ever get it done? And I was working really hard to be holy and righteous and acceptable to my father. But in the midst of all my hoopla, I would hear the Holy Spirit. Bring a secular song to my remembrance. I think that's funny. <laughs> Jesus is not religious. <laughs> so there's this old song. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Annie's Song. And it was a song by John Denver. And I'm not allowed to, because of copyright, to actually let you see it or, <laughs> or hear it. But there was one line that said, Come let me love you let me give myself to you. And he would sing it. I would be busy. I got stuff to do, Jesus. (laughs) And he would sing it again. Come, let me love you. Let me give myself to you. He wasn't saying, hey, come here, I need you. (laughs) He was saying, come here, you need me. (laughs) You need to know how much I love you. You need to know that I can bless your efforts. You need to know how good I am. You need me. This was just God's way of saying, it's not more time you need, sweetie. It's more time with me you need. Come away to a quiet place and let me love you. Let me show you the things to come. Let me show you what I have for you. Let me show you how good I really am. I am (laughs) all-powerful. I am the God of cherishing love and abundant supply. He simply invited me to let the love and truth and presence of my Father refresh and revive me. He had a way of extending my day. And I would get more done by taking time with Him than by trying to push Him aside so I could get everything done. I would submit myself to Him and to His love and make time to be with Him in prayer and in the Word and, yep, in singing songs. (laughs) You see, when He sings a song over us, you will find us singing the same song back. Come, let me love you. Let me give myself to you. And of course, he was always right. (laughs) What I really needed was just more time with him, face to face, one on one. Worshiping God is something we need, (laughs) not something God needs or demands. We're the ones who need to spend time in his presence, hearing his voice and letting him love on us as we love on him. We're the ones who need to be reminded that God's not an angry or demanding God. He's not interested in, in taking anything away from us except our sins. <laughs> he is loving and he is supplying. We are the ones who need to be reminded that Jesus paid it all and that I can add nothing to his sacrifice and that all my failings and shortcomings no longer separate me from my Father's love, or my Father's approval. We're the ones who need to constantly see the truth of who God really is and who he's made us to be again and again and again and to grow in the knowledge and understanding of him more and more because the more I see him, the more I know him, the more I can just rest by faith in who he is. And we do this by continually submitting ourselves to his cherishing love and abundant supply by faith in El Shaddai, the God who is almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, and all-supplying. He has given us his spirit. He has poured out his love into our heart so that we don't even have to come up with the love. (laughs) He gave us everything so that his life and love could work through us to him and to others. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Father God, that when we see you for who you are and the truth of how good and how kind and how generous you are, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've granted it. You said, yes, sweetie, you can have whatever you need. Yes, you are just like me in your spirit. I did that on purpose so that we could have fellowship so you could know me and I could know you. I thank you, Father God, that you don't demand us to worship. You invite us to worship. You invite us to be cognizant of who you really are and that you really are with us, and you really brought all your power and all your goodness with you. We thank you, Father God, that by your grace, your faith, and your spirit, you, you help us to walk out the truth of who you are to other people. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who is the one who opens our eyes and causes us to see and to remember and to know you've got us, we're yours. You're not looking for anything else from us. You just want us to let you (laughs) love us and know us. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of what your word reveals as worship, us submitting to your love. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.